Well, good morning and happy new year. Uh, I, my name is Eric Reese. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Heritage Presbyterian Church. And it is my privilege and honor to provide an exhortation to you all this New Year's morning, to all of us, really. Uh, It's an exhortation because I'm not a teaching elder, and I'm not licensed to preach. But we are encouraged um, as we are able to provide our senior pastor, Todd Gwynapp, a couple weeks out of the pulpit so that he and his family can have some rest, restoration, and he can come back with his heart prepared as he dives into 1 Samuel. With that encouragement, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 4, and our main passage this morning is going to be verses 16 through 18, although we're going to start in verse 7. We're doing that out of necessity of the context of this passage. Now, New Year is a time of new beginnings. It's a reset if you will. Um, we, ha- we have this as a time to reflect on the previous year as well as looking forward to the year to come. We often make resolutions, uh, whether we write them down in our journals or planners or we think about them mentally. We have things that we're resolved to do in the coming year, and we're excited about that. We have resolutions maybe such as, I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year. I'm going to read the New Testament four times, the Old Testament twice. I will save more money and give more money this year. I'm going to deepen my relationships, spend more time with family, pray more frequently, pray longer, et cetera, et cetera. The list can go on. Even those resolutions that are biblical and filled with grace um, can show us our faults and our frailty and our weakness. And so as I was looking at New Year's resolutions, I'm fascinated by the stats of these, really am. And at the surface level, it's somewhat hilarious. And just let me mention a few of these for you this morning. 25% of us will quit within the first week. That's one in four, all right? 65% after the first month. Done. Quit. You're not even gritting through it. You're actually, you're, I'm done. Nine percent will complete the year with their resolutions. Now this, this has created what is called Quitter's Day. Yes, there is such a day that has been called Quitter's Day, and they have designated that day on the time of the month, second Friday of the month in which most people quit. And that is the second Friday in January. So this year is January 13th. Now, listen to what Jonathan Edwards, um, past theologian and preacher, had to say about keeping track of his 70 resolutions. He created around 22 when he was 19 years old and then kept adding more to it. Now, these resolutions were filled with language of grace and language of relying on God's will, but he was tracking them with his diary. And at a certain point, he just stopped tracking them all together. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards had to say after he reflected back 
on that time. With a great dependence on my own strength, which afterwards proved a great damage to me, my experience had not then taught me as it has done since. My extreme feebleness and impotence, every manner of way, and the innumerable and bottomless depths of secret corruption and deceit that there was in my heart. That's heavy. This is a man that we look at, that we've read, who was resolved to bring God glory. And yet these resolutions brought him a deeper understanding of his own sin and his own failure and his weakness. When we look back at our journals and our planners, they tell us a couple things. God's ways are not our ways. And we are weak, frail vessels. We are imperfect prone to be selfish, forgetful, broken, cracked, and in need of regeneration and renewal. So we see here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is seeking reconciliation. He's seeking reconciliation with the converts there, and he is under attack. There's much conflict going on in Corinth. He is under attack from what numerous commentators have called super apostles, These were orators competing for the hearts and minds of the Corinthians in ways that was contrary to the truths of the gospel. They valued prosperity, outward appearance, and flourishing, and declared weakness and suffering a sign that God's favor is not upon you. In fact, this is what they used to try and discredit Paul. They kept track of all of Paul's supposed weaknesses, his failed travel plans to the church, and put into question Paul's apostolic ministry to the Corinthians. This is a very deep and personal letter from Paul in 2 Corinthians. And he was the ambassador for Christ to the Corinthians, and to deny or discredit him and have them persuaded by these apostles, false apostles, would be potentially jeopardizing their reconciliation with God. So let's look at God's word this morning, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe, and so, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Please pray with me. Father, grant your Holy Spirit to be active as we read your word and look to your truth for us this morning. Reveal Christ to us, Father. Prepare our hearts to understand and be awakened by your graces and mercy so that we move closer to you and each other. Amen. We see here that we are not promised to flourish in this world, in our outer self. In fact, suffering is a mark of being a Christian. It is expected, and God is not surprised by it. We are called to it. No one is excluded from suffering. Let's start there. Let's survey what God's word has to say so that we're looking strictly at this passage alone, but seeing that scripture is supporting itself. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. First Peter chapter 4, 12 to 13. Beloved, do, you not, do not be surprised at the fairy trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So our theme this morning is we do not lose heart. Um, this is our passage here in 16 through 18 offers paradox between outer and inner, wasting away and being renewed, light momentary affliction and eternal weight of glory and what is seen and then what is unseen. We're going to start, we're going to have three points this morning. Uh, first one is God is glorified in our weakness. Look with me at verse 16. So is like therefore. And as much, we must look back at the previous verses. 16 through 18 is like a hinge where it looks at the previous verses of 7 through 15, even, beyond, even before that, but then also looking forward in chapter 5 to the glory that awaits us. We do not lose heart. We do not faint. We do not despair. Though our outer self, that is our whole person, existence in this age, temporary, it's wasting away. Our weakness and our frailty resulting from this fallen world, sin, and the God of this age, Satan. 
We suffer, we age, we decay. The affliction is real, various sufferings and death. Now notice, inner self is that which is of the age to come. Our spiritual being, image of God. It is important to note that the inner self shows us eternity has already broken through in this present age. And we have Christ to thank for that. We are being renewed. Renewed is more ever-increasing renewal. It is not a wash, repeat, bring you back up just above water. It is an ever-increasing renewal that God is doing that is producing an eternal weight of glory. Look in verse 7. Our outer self is being represented as jars of clay. Now, these jars of clay were cheap, often broken and cracked vessels, but they oftentimes held valuable possessions and valuable things. And we see that we, being weak vessels, the Lord delights to work in our weakness. He loves to work in our weakness, and that shows forth his power and glory. As you look at the end of verse 7, show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I, as a kid uh, in the fourth grade, I went to the Hoover Dam. Who's been to the Hoover Dam? Okay, several of you. Uh, probably had the same experience that I did. Extremely powerful. Um, my, all of my senses maxed out. I, it's just so vivid to me that I remember this experience. Uh, driving to the Hoover Dam, I could hear the noise of the vents and turbines just invading our vehicle, windows up. It is just so loud. The largeness of the structure is just amazing. It's magnificent. You look over and you can get dizzy. You look at the water that is being held on the other side and you look at what is being protected downstream. And this mass of water is producing energy And you think about, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the sermon, and the base of the dam is over 600 feet wide, pure concrete, anchored. That's that's more than two football fields. Um, A crack, though, in an earthen dam can, if not noticed and fixed, the integrity of the structure will eventually give way and create death and destruction for everything downstream from it. Contrast that, friends, with the jars of clay, the cracks that we have, our weaknesses and our sufferings are being used by God, and it's revealing Christ. It's revealing Christ, and we are being conformed to Christ. We are continually being filled and renewed whereas the dam is being depleted and creating death and destruction for everything downstream, whereas our cracks and our frailty is downstream from God, and that is life-giving. That is life-giving. The treasure that this verse speaks to is of inestimable value. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, We see that in verse 6, the verse before it. Now, in verse seven through, I'm sorry, in verse eight through nine, 
we also see Paul here talking about his hardships, his afflictions, um, maybe a little bit of humble brag going on, but really what Paul is trying to show the Corinthians here is that he is suffering for their sake and for Jesus' sake. And he's not boasting of these trials and these sufferings. He's boasting in the fact that this is God's credit. God is preserving. God is sustaining. And so, friends, one of the things that we need to think about is we cannot promote self as the Corinthians and these apostles were persuading the Corinthians to do while also proclaiming that Christ saves. We cannot promote self while also proclaiming that Christ saves. The tension here is that God does not look on our outward appearances. He looks on the heart. Scripture tells us that even in chapter 5, Paul is saying we're not commending ourselves to you, but we're saying that God is not looking on outward appearance. He's looking on the heart. He was being judged. He was being judged by his outward appearance. And these apostles were saying, you're not a messenger of God because you have all these afflictions and you're weak. That's not a sign that you're a messenger. But God says otherwise. God looks on the heart. We see in 1 Samuel 16, when David's, being anoint, David's anointing as king, we see Samuel looking at Eliab and saying, his stature, his appearance, surely God's anointing is on this man. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Friends, when was the last time we judged someone wrongly based on their outward appearance? We do it all the time. We have our biases, we have our prejudices, and we look at outward appearance. We also look at personality, culture. We make judgments. Paul here is telling the Corinthians, he's also, God's telling us as well, that outward appearance is not what God looks at. And so our gaze should not be there as well. God delights to work in our weakness, and when God is glorified in that, that is renewing our inner self and helping us to not lose heart. As God helps us to not lose heart by him receiving the glory, we also look at the church. The church is being glorified, and this is our second part. This is our second point. The church is glorified as our heart is conformed unto Christ. So look at verse 17 with me quickly. Four is pointing back to the inward renewal or inner self. Light momentary affliction is in direct contrast to eternal weight of glory. Light can be seen as insignificant, momentary short duration, temporary. Our affliction will end. It is not forever. Affliction is producing glory. The affliction that we suffer is producing 
preparing and producing an eternal weight of glory. And God is doing that. We look at verses 10 through 12, and we can see a pattern here. There's a pattern of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection that is also our pattern. And we see Paul mentioning that to the Corinthians in this letter and to us. A couple words I would focus on here is always, in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death or the dying of Jesus. Always being given over to death of Jesus. The life of Jesus manifested in our body. And in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So we see here a pattern. Friends, this is a reminder that what is true of Jesus is true for us in Christ. We carry the dying of Christ as it is manifested in the flesh, meaning that as we suffer and we experience affliction, God is using that and shaping to frame our reference on that which is eternal, the resurrection to come, Christ and people as image bearers. That suffering is extending his graces to others in the body and community that he has placed us within. I think Paul here as well is still has in mind his, in chapter one, where he talks about as we share our sufferings, we share in our comforts. The afflictions that we have experienced in life and how God has been there and how God uses that to minister to others. We are to comfort others with the affliction and the comfort that we have received from God. So for the church, as grace is being extended in evangelism, we see salvation. We think, we see in verse 15, for this is all for your sake, Corinthians, that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So the church is being built up in comfort through our suffering. It is also being expanded. God is using suffering and affliction to expand his kingdom. More and more people coming to Christ. And with that comes thanksgiving, and with that comes glory being provided to God. Paul wrote this section in the midst of affliction, but as you look in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, you don't need to go there, but I'll, I'll explain. Paul was experiencing a heavy burden in Asia. That burden was too much for him to carry. It made him, he called it a sentence of death. But if you look at that verse, it says, it made him look upon Jesus and the promise of being resurrected with a glorious body. It is important to note here, friends, that our response in suffering can be deeply emotional. We can be angry. We can have doubts. We can question God. He can handle that. He can handle that, and he can work in the midst 
of that response. We look at Jesus at Gethsemane and at the cross. God is not dependent on us to work and renew our inner self. So as these afflictions are happening, we're being renewed by our suffering and we're not losing heart because it is building up the church and is advancing his kingdom and we are being conformed more and more to Christ. The tension here too is that our posture towards God and our perspective can be distorted like the Corinthians, which can also be us. We can, within that distortion, compromise truths of the gospel in a way, especially when we have desires of this world and we expect outward flourishing and growth. We see here, friends, that there's a better way. There's a better pattern. And that is as we share in Christ's sufferings, our hearts are being conformed to Christ. And he is being revealed, and we see the building up of the church. This suffering that Paul is experiencing, what he's trying to also say is this has made his ministry to the Corinthians credible. This is what is God is using for the growth of the church and for the building up. As we look now in verse 18, we see that faith assures us this glory. Uh, look at verse 18 with me. As the result of Christ's work in our renewal, we look not to the things that are seen, that is of this world, but to the things that are unseen. The reality, although we are unable to see it, and this is where faith is required. We walk by faith, not by sight. The things are the things that are eternal, resurrected, glorious body in the age to come. The challenge here for us and the Corinthians is to look and focus on the eternal weight of glory, competing with the hope and our comfort of this world. What we're called to do here is through the renewal of our inner self, our desire and our gaze is shifting from what is completely inadequate in this world to that which is eternal, being raised like Jesus and with other believers into his presence. We cannot do this on our own. It is due to our distorted desires. Um, C.S. Lewis in the book, Weight of Glory, has this to say. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drinks, drink, sex, ambition, with infinite joy, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When our desires for this world are interrupted, 
by sin and suffering. We see our desires are misplaced. God is helping us to look on those that is eternal. Instead of being motivated by what we lack, we are motivated by God's grace in our lives. Ecclesiastes says that he has put an eternity into man's heart. We are wired to think about eternity. Faith that enables salvation is the same faith, friends, that guarantees with the Holy Spirit that the Lord will perfect our inward renewal and we will obtain a glorious resurrected body in the age to come. We must look at Jesus, though, don't we? That is, our question is not, how can I? The question should be, how did he? Jesus looked at the joy that was set before him. He looked at the salvation of those God the Father had given him and his suffering, death, and resurrection for our sake was done so that we do not lose heart and do not become weary. So our salvation is in and of itself a comfort and helps us to not lose heart. And we look at Jesus and we look at what Jesus Christ did for us. Faith enables us to look at the things that are unseen and eternal. In chapter 5 here in uh, verse 5, listen to this. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It is a guarantee, friends. It is not up to chance. It is a guarantee for those who have put their faith in Christ. So, in conclusion, as Paul has persevered in the midst of suffering, we look and he is offlining and pointing to Christ, the true source of our hope and reason that we do not lose heart. In Hebrews chapter 2, we see that we have a Savior that was made lowly, experienced all kinds of suffering, trials, oppositions, rejection, persecution, and loneliness in his humanity. He was perfected in his suffering, tasted death for us all by the grace of God and crowned with glory and honor. We share in that fellowship of suffering as well as a resurrection and eternal weight of glory. So friends, I'll leave you with a question. How does what we hold as ultimate value shape our response in suffering? Please pray with me. Father, as we recognize our own frailty and weakness, let it be used for your glory, building up of believers and spreading the gospel. Renew us, Father. Grant the richness of your graces to help us comfort each other in our sufferings. Reveal Christ and how union with Christ is central to our faith and our desire to look towards those things that are not of this world, 
but to our eternal weight of glory. Amen.